You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Bob Eggleton is a science fiction, fantasy, and a landscape artist. He's the winner of nine Hugo Awards, 12 Chesley Awards, the 1999 Skylark Award, and two Locus Awards. Thank you for joining me, Bob. No problem. Glad to be here. Bob, I'd like to get a little bit of a sense of history of when did you start to paint it? As a kid? Were you an artist as a kid? Well, my mother tells me at 18 months old I knew all my colors. Um, I uh, had a lot of... Um, uh, astuteness working um, with colored, um, uh, you know, color spectrums and things like that. My, my mother said that I was, I, I could point out the colors of cars, so she, I, I knew what they were and, and stuff like that. So early, later on, I, I, um, my dad had um, gotten a uh, blackboard for me uh, to write with chalks on, and this is like day, way before the days of computers and kids playing around with computers now. And that was my magic window. That was that was the thing that I created all kinds of worlds and dinosaurs and all kinds of stuff on. Painted all you know did a, did a lot of drawings. And Dad would sit down with me and teach me how to draw. And uh, that was at four. So uh, by the time I was in you know getting into my uh, my si- my later single numbers as I call it, um, I pretty much knew what I wanted to do. I was doing a lot of drawings and stuff like that, and they really couldn't stop. Nobody could stop me from drawing. So. Then um, in the 70s, I kind of went to high school and all that, and then I, I just looked at, I had contacted um, a number of artists and went to my first science fiction conventions in the late 70s, and I kind of knew that's what I wanted to do. Wow, so you, this is really interesting. So you were an artist from day one, practically, yeah, and, and, I, I and went right into like, the science fiction world, too. Yeah, I was like, I. what had happened was my... Um, um, uh, I, I went to early on. Um, uh, they tried to send me to Sunday school, but I got thrown out because I wanted to know like where the dinosaurs were in the Garden of Eden and things like that. So, what had happened was I, I really got into um, things like my dad, especially he, my late dad. He got me into um, Star Trek, and that was in the '60s. That was when it was originally a new series. He got me into it then, and then <clears throat> I saw the movie 2001: A Space Odyssey, and it completely changed my life. It was just I mean, it was like I started on its first run, and I was completely blown away by it. I was nine years old. Boy, I remember that. I was 12 when I saw it, and it just, it, it did it change into a lot of people's lives. Yeah. I mean, this is like, you know, this is me watching this, and I'm going, oh, my God, here it is. This is a movie that, um, I'm saying, who, whoever made this, he, he knew what I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> um, what kind of science fiction did you read as a kid? Well, I read a lot of the classics, of course. I read like H.G. Wells, and uh, um, you know, I was really into the kind of the the, the basic classics, uh, some Arthur C. Clarke, but it was mostly, you know, a lot of Jules Verne, H.G. Wells, that sort of stuff. And then I read a lot of comic books too. I had tons of comic books. What comic books did you read? Oh, things like The Incredible Hulk and. Uh, 
um, a lot of the ones that featured monsters and things like that in them, and Fantastic Four, and uh, I mean, this is all when Marvel Comics they were called like Journey into Mystery and things like that, you know. And so, so yeah, I, I was really into comics at a very early age, and also into the magazine Famous Monsters of Filmland, and I, I really had a rounded view of things. I, I, I like the literature, the comics, and the media of all of it. So, Forrest Ackerman, boy, I, I don't know how many people's lives that guy has touched. Famous monsters of Filmland. Oh yeah, I mean it's it's amazing. I mean, Fifty Cents would take you into this world where, and of course, like I try to explain this now, and you know, a lot of younger kids today they they've got you know DVDs and iPods and they can download movies and they can look at movies on the net and all kinds of stuff. And back then, like Famous Monsters was how we stayed in touch with what was going to be, uh, the, you know, fantasy or science fiction movie that was going to come out. We. <clears throat> We would look at it and go like, "Wow, you know, this is good. Hopefully, we'll come to a theater near us, you know." And and that was your sort of, um, uh, you know, your your way into, um, uh, you know, your your view into that world. And that was really the the only connection you had. There was no internet or anything like that. And uh, um, you know, for me, uh, you know, and I'd always I always kind of look forward to these. And I was like, and and you have to watch that movie when it came on TV because it's like, oh my God. You know, 2001 is going to be on TV on Saturday night, and, 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 and I haven't seen it in years in the theaters. And, you know, and of course, back then, you couldn't record anything, and there was no VHS, and there was no DVD, so you watched it. Could you tell me a little bit about your education? Uh, you, presumably, uh, beyond, did you pursue education beyond high school? I, I went to um, Rhode Island College, is what happened, and they... You know, they, they had all of the um, facilities in art. The art schools had, um, but they were a lot cheaper to go to. And um, that, you know, I, I, I had toured a very famous art school that is in Rhode Island. And I, at the time, you have to understand, this is like the late 70s. Um, their entire, uh, the onus of what they were trying to was this sort of non-representational sort of work, and it just wasn't... I mean, if you said something to somebody you liked Frank Frazetta, that was a real... Um, if you considered, say, Frazetta a major American artist, or Norman Rockwell, or somebody like that, that was like a... a, a, a uh, they, they looked down upon you for that, because everything was, at the time, it was all this very... You know, non-representationalism was very big in the late 70s. And uh, so I, I really didn't want to go that direction. So I went to Rhode Island College for a little bit, and <clears throat> I found out that they were uh, very much into um, uh, sort of trying to veer me away from the more commercial aspects of things. And I lasted there for about 18 months, and then I got a job in an art supply store, and I wound up getting a better education talking to people there and learning all about the supplies and things like that, what you could do with them, and I was getting paid for it. So, so you know, that's, that's the way I did that. You know, uh, my wife went, was with me at uh, UC Irvine. She was an art student there, and this was also during the late 70s when uh, they – the major artists who were appearing at UC Irvine, there was a couple guys called the Kipper Kids, right? <laughs> who would just like throw like trash at the audience, and, and also I think we had at that time Chris Burden, who was like uh, whose art pieces were like he'd take a pistol and, and shoot it and point it in the general vicinity of a airline. This was before hijackings were oh. and, uh, and all that other stuff, and and that was his art piece. So it was a. Uh, 
it was definitely my wife, who was, is now a graphic designer and a painter, she was not that thrilled with the art scene in the, in the late 70s either. Right, yeah, I, I just found it to be kind of a, it was a sort of a, you know, post-60s kind of um, whole, I mean, they, they, they sort of had this modern attitude about it, and it was more like a fad more than anything. It wasn't, it wasn't anything substantial. It was more like somebody just saying, hey, you know, let's drop TV sets into the road and film it, and it's art, you know? I mean, that's, that's what their, their whole, that's what their, their take on it was. When I, you know, when I, um, when I was uh, there, and I, you know, it just, didn't, it just didn't do anything for me. I'm going like, well, what about the basics of drawing, and what about the basics of wanting to get into something that's going to, you know, or make you a living in the arts, and, uh, you know, and of course that was all evil. Money was evil, and, you know, you don't, you don't want to do that, and, you, you know, their idea was you had to starve and all that, and I, I, just, I just didn't agree with it at all, at all period. I was like, no, I, I don't agree with it, and uh, so I started going to science fiction conventions as a result, and I started meeting these really great artists, and, um, I, you know, uh, a whole bunch of great guys, uh, Don Mates, Michael Whalen, people like that, and, you know, I was showing them my drawings, and they said, hey, you know, you should start putting your drawings up at these conventions, and this is like circa 1979, so with that in mind, I entered into a world science fiction convention in 1980, and uh, I did surprisingly well. Everybody really liked what I did, and, and uh, I won awards, and I sold work, and I'm saying, hey, you know, this is pretty good. I'm you know, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. I think there's something to this, so that's what I stayed with. Now, uh, tell me about your very first sale for a book cover. Oh, that was thanks very much to Mr. The late Jim Bain, who um, he helped a lot of people's careers. Oh and, yes, yes, he was an he important force. Own, what's that, please? He was an important force in, in the yeah, publishing he, world. Yeah, he had his own line of books called uh, Bain Books, and um, Jim passed away uh, two years ago, and um, it's a. Uh, um, uh, he, he sort of came up to me, and uh, in his way that he would, he had this kind of sauntering way of coming up, and he sort of said, like, hey, you know, I really like your stuff, and, uh, you know, would you consider doing book covers for me? And I was like, yeah, sure, like that. So, you know, he really gave me the, the early on, he really showed me how and what makes a really good book cover, and, and, and I didn't always agree with him. There were times, you know, I, I used to kind of disagree with him vehemently, but, you know, I was younger and all that, and I would kind of willing to look at him like, well, he's been in it longer, so maybe he knows something I don't, you know. So I, I you know, had long, you know, talks with him about this kind of stuff. And later on when um, we got to be, you know, we got to be almost friends, I guess you could say, us, and uh, he, um, he, you know, he helped, uh, he really showed me what makes, like, good, what makes a, good, a book cover, for instance, really work, and and he's he's absolutely correct. I mean, people can debate it, but he's absolutely correct. And the success of his company to this day, uh, where they keep on selling books and doing pretty well, I think is testament to that too. So, well, what specifically? What book did you do a cover for? Oh, specifically, he um, gave me a uh, a cover to uh, 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 Flight of the Dragonfly by Robert Forward and uh, the late Robert I, Forward. I remember that book. Yeah, and, and uh, that was a good book was, and a good book cover. Yeah, that, thank you. That was one of my first. That was, I think, my first job I did with them. Um, and and then I sold what they call stock art rights to some other stuff, which was nice because it was like he he just looked at something I'd done and said, you know, I'll I'll um you know I'll buy the secondary rights on this, and there was great pickup rights on it, and uh, that all that's how it all came to be, you know. And I I sort of went off from there. I uh, one job led to another, and um, 
you know, and, and I sort of went out and got very encouraged to go sort of promoting my work, which is what I did. So, so you know, it was a good time to be in the business, too. It was a, a very, a very a good time when artists were really starting to get very well noticed and, and, and better paid than they ever were. Could you talk a little bit about the the professional art community as you entered it, and, and mm. uh, you know you must have met uh, some of these you know no icons. Did you meet uh, Frank Frazetta? Frazetta? I've met Frank Frazetta, but not at the convention. I, I met him in another affair entirely in Florida, and he showed up uh, to say hi to everybody. And I, I just met him. This was in the '90s. It had to be, and he um, had just had a he had just recovering from a stroke. And so he was not not in the best of health at that point, but you know it was just he was just really great to meet. He was just a really good. Um, I mean, his work is so immortal. It's just it's just there's there is no other there is nothing like Frank Frazetta. I mean, he just does incredible work, and um, uh, it's so iconic. It, it it has done so much for the field too. What what else? What else can you tell me? I, I guess about the community of artists. I mean, there's not a lot of you. There there's a, a fair amount of work going around uh, how do you guys divvy it up or, or tell me well basically what happens is this is the, the field has changed vastly in the last oh i would say 10 years uh, a lot of book covers have been affected by this uh, so, the, so they call it the digital revolution where where it's you know where the artwork is no longer done as a painting uh like an oil painting like i work but it's done on a computer screen and the problem with that is that it's not so much the lack there is i mean there's a lot of talented people that give them anything give them a computer give them um, a computer or a brush and they're going to do a good job whatever they do the problem is it's it's drawn out of the woodwork a lot of really untalented people who are kind of like they they're sort of anonymous usually and they they sort of uh, can be on staffs and stuff like that, where they where they just paid to kind of crank out really imitative and very poorly thought out book covers that are just basically assembled photographs. And that's lately has been the problem with the field. It's, there's been a lot of um, a lot of um, a bad art. Um, and there's a lot of good art. There's a lot of good art. Uh, my feeling is this is that that um, I've managed to on my own thing is I've managed to stay the course just by. You know, I, I know who I work for. I have a certain set of people that I do work for. I'm always looking at working for new people, too. But um, <clears throat> one of the things I work for are like the, a lot of the small press community. And these places are like Subterranean Press, Golden Griffin Press. They, they do um, smaller-run books. And the, the nice part is, is that they kind of come to you because they like what you do. It's not just someone they need to do a job they they just happen to like you know they come to me because they want a bob eggleton they want like that kind of look on their cover and that's you know and, and you know i'm not i'm not um uh saying that uh i'm not going to knock that because i've gotten some very very good commissions out of these type of things right now i'm doing a robert heinlein double edition of his uh, movie scripts that he did back in the 50s. The stuff's never been published, ever. So wow. um, I'm, I'm, I'm having a ball. And basically they're, they're sort of saying to me, the publisher says to me, hey, just, you know, whatever you feel is going to be right for this cover, I'll trust your judgment on it. And he kind of lets me go to town on it. And uh, that's, how I'm, that's how I work on it. 
Your style is really interesting, and it really does speak to the science fiction covers of some of the you know the classic '70s science fiction covers. Could you talk about right what, who who influenced you and and where you know you trace the threads of your current style and where maybe you see it going? Okay, well, I have a lot of a lot of influences, and a lot of my influences, believe it or not, they go right back to the old masters who are long dead. I mean, people like English British landscape painters, um, artists like Arnold Bachlin, who was a Swiss surrealist from the 18th century. He did some amazing stuff, and um, uh, there were some romantics. Uh, Joseph Millard Turner is an, a big influence in my work. Um, as I got into illustration more. Um, I found that uh, I, I, you know, guys like Mel Hunter, Chesley Bonestell, um, <clears throat> Chesley Kelly... Bonestell. Wow, yeah. wow, that's a name that brings back memories. I mean, oh, it, you, Chesley I, Bonestell. I, yes, all oh, those Willie Lay books I used to read. <laughs> yes. Yep, Chesley Bonestell, and uh, um, uh, let's see. Um, oh God, Fred Freeman did beautiful work, and there was Kelly Kelly Frias. He's, he's not only was a influence in me, but he was also a very dear friend of mine, and um, uh, I mean, there's this host of guys, it just, Hubert Rogers, he's another great artist from the pulp era, um, all these people sort of have this, the golden age of it, which is like in the 40s and all that, um, that is really influential in my style, because I, I just happen to like that look a lot, and um, for me, it's, it's, it's sort of a, you know, I'm, I'm, I I don't know. I'm just a tr- I'm a traditionalist in that sense. I I get ooh, I get little when I see like you know pointed rockets on planets and things like that. I get little chills going up and down my spine, which is nice. Could you talk about how do you when you're handed a novel or what, for example you're working on this Heinlein uh, scripts right now? Uh, how do you develop the visual images that you pair? And, and how often are you told I, I want a rocket ship or I want a, a slimy space plant? Um, I, you know, in this case, they, they sort of leave it up to me a lot of times. Um, I, I, I have an idea where I'm going based upon the subject matter. On the Heinlein one, I mean, Heinlein and pointed rocket ships, it's like, it's like you know, <laughs> hand in hand, okay? So when I, when I wanted to go that direction, I figured, um, you know, usually a lot of times I don't even get a... Um, uh, there's been several times I don't even get a book, and it's very interesting because... <laughs> Because the, again, the book the book industry's changed a lot. The cover industry's changed, where they they come publishing has changed, and they've come along and they say, okay, we need a cover to a book, and the book's coming out in eighteen months, but we need the cover almost immediately, and the writer hasn't even finished writing the book, but that's because they want to put it in a catalog and things like that, you know. So you have that quandary where where you're only fed bits of information of what the what the writers um uh you know what the writer has uh. Uh, has in mind, and um, other times too, you have to sh- have complete artistic license on things because sometimes a, a story can be beautifully told and wonderful to read, but it's not necessarily always visual. Um, that's that's one of the biggest problems that I I find, um, and then producing it to some something palatable for a mass market so that people can look at it and say, okay, yeah, that's this, you know, and that's that's. That's what you have to um, you have to really um, um, weigh up on. You know, it's it's very it's very it's a it's 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 a the cover business is a very strange business to work in because you're producing a painting that is ostensibly it's like fine art. It's very nice to work with, um, but the problem is, is that you wind up with um, 
uh, having to produce a, a commercial product that everybody will look at and say, uh, you know, that's great, I'll buy that book. But at the same time, you want to put your own fine art sensibilities into it. So it's a balancing act you've got to do. Could you give an example of a book that didn't have much of a visual tagline that you had to uh, then create a cover for? And yeah. How, how you created that cover? Uh, yeah. Um, there was one a book I did by Mike Resnick called Ivory, and I just I know that book. It was just reissued last year by Pyre Books, and what was fun about it was that um, well the, the the book the original cover was done by Michael Whalen and he took a different approach than I did and I wanted to go completely completely opposite from what he had done I mean I wanted to go in the, the other direction and essentially it's a it's a, a a search across the cosmos for these Kilimanjaro elephant tusks and there's a lot of uh, characters in it there's a lot of sort of um, talking and, and people discussing things and things like that. And that's, you know, how the story's basically told. And so in my approach, I wanted to go and I made this Africa, I made a big African elephant on the front cover with sort of a spacecraft taking off in the background and a Maasai tracker in the as well there. And so I kind of get in the spaceship, I gave it this kind of an African appearance. I made it look kind of like a ceremonial shield or something like that, or it had patterns on it that would look very tribal in a sense. And so I wanted to create something, you know, like that. And, um, you know, I wanted to make it a little bit, you have this prosaic situation of this great big elephant, and then you've got this spacecraft in the background. And so that little that little jarring of... of of the of natural and supernatural type things, that's what made me very. Uh, that's that was my my hook to it, and that's how I went about it. So, and the author really liked it, and the publisher really liked it, and the editor really liked it. So, and then I sold the original, which is it made everybody happy. One thing that that I think you do really well are, are you mentioned you describe yourself as a landscape artist, and you do really well. Uh, these kind of fantastic science fiction landscapes. And I'm thinking of the cover that you did for an Alistair Reynolds, I believe, a novella for Golden Griffin. And oh, right. Yes, yes. And the, it was um, just a breathe, breathe, breathe Moss, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that's Ian McLeod. That was Breath Moss. And, and it's, I'm trying to remember the other one. It's, what, the Alistair Reynolds. Um, boy, it was one of his Revelation Space uh, series. It, you illustrated these kind of floating islands that are somewhat intelligent creatures. Could you Oh, the, um, oh, God, yeah, I can't even, I can't, my, my mind's drawing a blank on that one. Um, it's very green. No? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's it, yeah. Could, could you talk a little bit about uh, creating these kind of landscapes that are not real, yet making well, them real? Sure, yeah. One of the things that's important is, again, is to create that sense of that you're looking at something real, and you're looking at something completely prosaic that, that, that is, it's there in front of you, but you also have to, you know, it has to be something not of this earth and has to look very uh, unearthly in a sense. And one of, the, one of the things that really is important when you're creating an otherworldly landscape is to create just a sense that, that somebody's there, that this actually could exist. And the best way to do that is to create something that's kind of would be almost recognizable to the viewer, but then you've got something completely unusual that is completely different about it that makes it um a very um uh, amazing sort of landscape you know um whether it might be a double sun in the sky or two moons or something like that that's the important that's that's what really makes it and, and 
could you tell me, uh, you do your work now, you your work all in oils? Yeah, I now I've transferred over to working in oil. Um, I have a blog, a daily blog, Bob's Art Du Jour, it's called, and... Um, uh, one of the things I do is I tried, I wanted to get into oil painting because I'd seen some artists that were doing it, and I got really tired of working in the water medium of acrylic, which is a kind of a, it's basically a plastic-based paint. And uh, what I was happening was I wasn't, being, I wasn't able to get the depth that I was looking for in the paintings. So I had learned to paint in oils many decades ago, so or several decades ago, and I said, well, why not get back into it? And so that's what I've done ever since. I've, got, I've gotten back into the oils, and uh, they really, they've really worked out for me in, in a good way. So I'm, 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 I'm happy, very happy with what I'm doing. Do you do any uh, digital work on your paintings? I mean, do you, uh, do you photograph them and then treat them before you send not, them to the not, publisher? Not per se. No, I don't. Not, not per se, although that said, I am working on a digital book about uh, involving dinosaurs. It's kind of a kid's picture book, um, and it's going to be out next year from Sterling Publishing, and it's called If Dinosaurs Lived in My Town, and the idea is, is that it's, it's aimed at a yeah, yeah, very younger set, but if dinosaurs came to uh, be in someone's town, what, what would that be like? You know? And so what, I, what they wanted me to do was draw dinosaurs that are going to be basically inserted into photographs of normal everyday life. And the way that's being done is that I did the dinosaurs in a traditional method of working in watercolors, and then it's being they're all being given to a good friend of mine, Courtney Skinner, who is the guy who's digitally inserting those and painting them into the photographs. So there's almost a seamless look to them, and it's it's um, a very experimental book, um, and it'll be coming out next uh, next not this spring, but next spring. But we're um, really excited about it, um, and, and it, it's something that I'm, I've been working on off and on with my other projects that, around me. You know, I, I've got lots and lots of projects always going on at once, and that's one of my, one of my projects I've been working on. So, um, and it's, 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 it, when I went into it, I was thinking, you know, I don't know, I, you know, how will I react to this digital stuff? And then what's happening is I'm seeing some, lots of positives for it. And again, you know, did, there's nothing wrong with digital as long as it's in good hands. But when it's when it gets into it's, it gets into hands of uh, people that are not necessarily that good at what they do, that's when you got a problem. Could you tell me a little bit about Dragonhenge, this uh, project you created with John Grant a couple oh, years yeah, back? Oh yeah, sure. Dragonhenge was a, um, a a a book in a series, a, a sort of a. I had a good relationship with a company in England called Paper Tiger, and I'd sold a lot of books for them, and they sort of gave me a sort of a blank check to do whatever I wanted for my next book projects. And the next one was going to be, I came up with a word one day, I was playing around, and I said, Dragonhenge, that's a cool sounding word. You know, I didn't sort of anything like it. So my good friend John Grant, who um, also known as Paul Barnett, he's a writer, um, he uh, sort of took it and ran with it and created this series of legends around it. And each one has a different legend to it. And then the idea would be that I would sort of, um, we, the two of us, I'd do some pictures and stuff, and he'd put his own stuff. He'd write around my pictures, and then I'd also do pictures around his writing. So we had this nice little collaborative codependency thing going on, which was really nice. It was, it was, it was really quite good. And um, uh, the result has been a book that's been phenomenally successful. It, it's, you know, I think it's like 30,000 copies in print, which is it's like, that's pretty good. That's great. We've been speaking with Bob Eggleton. He's a science fiction, fantasy, and landscape artist. Thank you for joining me, Bob. And no problem. 
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Thank you.